0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Treatment Room Podcast with your host, Tessa Zolli. I'm here today with my friend, Michelle Phelan, founder of Concepts Institute. And today we're going to talk about everybody's favorite topic, hyperpigmentation. Michelle, welcome to the show. And we're just so glad we have you on board to talk about this condition, especially as we head into the warmer summer months.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me back. I can't wait to get started. This is, like you mentioned, a very popular topic, especially going into summer with, you know, more skin exposed to the sun. So yeah, this will be a good topic today. We're so excited. Do you want to give us a little brief
0: introduction about yourself, who you are, and what you teach?
1: Yeah, so um, like Tess mentioned, my name is Michelle Phelan and I'm the founder of CONCEPTS Institute of Advanced Aesthetics and I also teach the clinical aesthetics phase uh, part of the program here. And CONCEPTS mainly focuses on clinical and paramedical aesthetics topics that help aestheticians learn what they need to work more effectively or I should say most effectively uh, in your line of work, whether it's your own business or a medical office with a physician or a medical spa, um, or just, you know, as a, as a solo esthetician. So there are lots and lots of different classes and courses to choose from, uh, with the clinical aesthetics course though, once you've taken at least six of the qualifying classes, there's about 14 to choose from, but once you've taken six, then you are eligible to test out. For the clinical aesthetic certificate uh, through Concepts Institute, which is proven to be really helpful uh, to estheticians in the industry, whether they're going to uh, you know look for work or just so your clients know that you are you know you are well trained at the top of, of the industry, and also our classes are certified through the NCEA, the National Coalition of Estheticians. So. Most of each class is worth five continuing education units, oh, You know whether you take the LED or lymphatic or hyperpigmentation. And um, a couple of the classes are worth more continuing education units. So this is also a really good place for people who are nationally certified through the NCEA to get those CEs in as well.
0: Yes, I actually obtained the clinical certification through concepts with Michelle. So I can certainly vouch for it. And I just always get the question, you know, how do I advance my education? How can I get more serious about aesthetics? And I do recommend the program. I think it's a really good just baseline information to set you up for success with
1: whatever you want to do next in aesthetics exactly you know whether it's you know in just working on your own or working in a medical office all of the classes and topics are very you know steeply um you know they're medical aesthetic science based i should say um based in medical science so um, we mostly focus on those kinds of of topics but there's something for everyone there's there's lots of different uh, classes to choose from we also have the paramedical aesthetics program um, with myself and Dr. Green, he's a board-certified facial plastic surgeon. Uh, he teaches half of that program, and that seems to be really helpful for estheticians who want to go into a medical office and gain a lot of what you, you know, want to know to be able to work effectively and confidently in a medical office with a plastic surgeon or a dermatologist, or even just in a medical spa.
0: Yes, and you know, we always hear people complain that you don't learn enough in esthetician school. Michelle's classes and program is not that. It's very different. There are classes that are very, very dense and you could take them multiple times over and over. I'm always revisiting the classes I've taken with her, which is also great. You can can rewatch these classes. So I'm just a big fan of Michelle.
1: Oh, thanks. Yes. (laughs) I know you've taken all the classes and you have so much knowledge and you offer your listeners just so much wonderful advice that I think that is really great, especially in this industry where that's, that's really needed and wanted. Yes, absolutely.
0: So today we want to talk about hyperpigmentation. And I know you recently taught a class on hyperpigmentation, right, Michelle?
1: Yes, actually, on Monday, we just finished up a class on uh, hyperpigmentation, the different types and the triggers and the causes and really good uh, treatment protocols and regimes that you can use in your skincare clinic to offer your clients to help with this, uh, you know, with this condition, which is just, you know, you can't bucket it all in one bucket. There's, there's so many variables there. So it's, mm-hmm. it's good to have that extra information so that you're able really to give a targeted, effective treatment that makes a big difference.
0: And Michelle, how do you define hyperpigmentation? What is it? And what is really happening on a cellular level with our skin when we're seeing signs of
1: hyperpigmentation? Yeah, so good question. So, everyone, of course, we know has pigmentation, um, and the melanocytes, which are the pigment cells down there in the basal cell zone, the bottom of the epidermis, is what produces color. And science has pretty much proven that we all have the same number of melanocytes, no matter if you're Fitzpatrick 1 or Fitzpatrick 6 or anyone in between, which is about 1,500 per square millimeter of skin, but we all express differently depending upon what the the DNA holds for us. That's why some people have lighter skin and some people have darker skin, no matter how much sun you get. Um, But pigmentation in general is normal. Of course, we have it in our skin, we have it in our hair, the color of our eyes, um, you know, for the most part, but where it becomes kind of an issue is when the melanocyte becomes hyperactive. So instead of producing color normally, where you start to have, we've all seen them, the unsightly brown spots on our skin that we don't necessarily want and can get darker with time. So basically when the melanocyte becomes hyperactive, you know, it could be for various reasons. It could be that the Milano site was damaged by excessive sunlight, many, many years of ultraviolet radiation. It could be from an influx of hormone. They're saying now estrogen dominance, which you'll see like in melasma, or sometimes we call it pregnancy mask. Uh, you could have PIH, which is post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation, which is triggered from trauma on the skin does that to kind of protect itself, you know, like after an acne breakout or picking or a burn or any damage to the epithelial tissue could trigger the melanocytes to produce more color so that you have that post inflammatory hyperpigmentation. Luckily that does go away pretty quickly providing there's no more damage, right? There's the, the acne needs to be treated first. And then we have something called ethylitis. It sounds more like a disease than it is. Ethylitis just means freckles. Freckles are a little bit tougher to treat. Luckily, most people today embrace their freckles. Uh, Freckles is a type of um, pigmentation that basically is kind of hardwired into the DNA of the melanocyte. Kind of like, you know, you're meant to have brown hair blonde hair or black hair or you know light skin, dark skin, I, you know, lots of hair on your face, no hair on your face. So, so freckles are hardwired into the DNA. So if someone is meant to have freckles, um, not born with freckles, but usually when the individual is like two or three years old and they're in the sun, the freckles start to show themselves and that is probably the hardest type of hyperpigmentation to treat. But like I mentioned, most people luckily embrace their freckles and a lot of people come in and want more freckles, right, with the tattooing. So I think that I think that is, is a good thing.
0: Yes, I'll never forget <laughs> you telling me, <laughs> Michelle, that my freckles were kind of a permanent part of my DNA and my skin. I mean, they will fade a little bit, they'll get lighter in the winter, but you know, come the warmer months, they do get a bit activated.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And I have people and I have my own clients who come in and say, well, the sun created my hyperpigmentation and and absolutely the sun makes all hyperpigmentation worse uh, for sure. Um, But there are other actual initial triggers like with the melasma or with, you know, ephelitis freckles or with PIH, you've got that initial trigger. On the other hand, with solar lentigo, they're the really small brown spots people have. As they start to get a little older, especially in fairer skin, you, you see them on the shoulders, you know, on the decollete, those spots are generally triggered because the individual had a lot of sun exposure at a younger age. And the ultraviolet radiation creating you know a lot of free radical damage on the skin and in the melanocyte permanently damages the melanocyte. And it's like almost like a reprogramming of the melanocyte. And then they have hyperpigmentation in, in those uh you know spots that don't, you know, that don't go away and that could progressively get worse and definitely gets darker with the sun. So And hopefully we'll talk about some good treatments for these things, not cure, but, but, but nevertheless, you know, treatments that you can use in your clinic.
0: I just want to make sure, Michelle, everyone can understand, and, and I'm sure a lot of people might be a little bit more visual in terms of trying to understand the hyperpigmentation cascade and how it happens. Do you think you could explain on a very basic level, like what a melanocyte is and how it travels up to the epidermis.
1: Yeah, definitely. So if you picture a melanocyte, it's at the very bottom and there there are lots of them, you know, there are 1,500 basically per square millimeter of basal cell zone, which is at the bottom of your epidermis. So that's where they exist in, in the epidermis, the bottom though of the epidermis, and they're they're clumped together, right, and they're, they just align that layer of skin um, among other things that happens down there as well, like the mitosis process. Although melanocytes don't go through mitosis. It's one cell. There are other cells as well, but that is one cell that doesn't go through cell division. It just remains there, and it continues to produce pigmentation. And so it kind of looks like a hand with three fingers or four fingers. So if you pick, if you look at your hand and the palm of the hand being the body of the melanocyte and that is where pigmentation is produced. And then the fingers are uh, dendrites. We'll say they're dendrites, long finger like projections that, you know, reach up into the epidermis. And those dendrites, those finger-like structures, is what the melanosomes or the color molecules rather, use to move up, you know, to move up into the skin. So they go up through those finger-like projections, you know, up into the epithelial tissue, up into the epidermis, and about the layer or level of stratum granulosum, which is the second or third level, depending upon, you know, what part of the body you're looking at. That's where the dendrites end. And the color actually then will diffuse into the skin. So it's kind of where color meets skin at the layer of stratum granulosum and becomes part of the skin. It's almost like if you have um, an ink pen and you put it to paper and the ink then infuses into the paper. Right? So the melanin, moves into the skin becomes part of the skin and then with the skin as the skin comes up 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 so does the melanin and then you can see it on the surface of your skin and say oh i got a you know i got a tan i was out in the sun a week or two and now i have have a tan so it could take several more than several days usually a week or two or three for you you actually to see a tan once you have had some color um, basically, when you're in the sun, I'll just give sort of a brief description of the melanogenesis Mo- process, <clears throat> excuse me, which is the, the process of, of making color basically. And when the sun hits the skin, if you can kind of picture this in your mind's eye, when the sun hits the skin, it breeds free radicals in the skin. That just happens, that's just natural. And we have little messengers in the skin called cytokines. We actually have messengers, messengers that activate other cells. So this messenger activates the melanocyte, which then will turn on something called melanin-stimulating hormone, so that more of the melanin-stimulating hormone that's in the skin will bind to the melanocyte. It's almost like the melanin stimulating hormone is let's say the key and the melanocyte is the lock. So the melanin stimulating hormone kind of unlocks those melanocytes that it had activated. And so when that happens, something really interesting happens inside the melanocytes is tyrosinase. Hopefully I'm not, getting too technical here and hopefully it's easy for you to picture. No, your, I, I your... think a
0: lot of people know the term tyrosinase now and they know tyrosinase inhibitor, which is inhibiting the pigment, things like your retinoid
1: or your vitamin C. Exactly. And in the class, I, you know, I go deeply into this as well in the hyperpigmentation class. So then tyrosinase is activated or, or turned on and inside that melanocyte Also inside the melanocyte, you have an amino acid called tyrosine, kind of the same name, but but different, right? So tyrosinase acts on tyrosine and it converts it into this kind of intermediate chemical called L-DOPA. And L-DOPA, and by the way, this is all happening inside the melanocyte and L-DOPA is an intermediate chemical. It's neither here nor there. It's waiting for something else to happen. So when oxygen comes into play, and of course there's lots of oxygen, you know, in and around your cells, the oxygen then will convert the L-dopa to dopaconone. And so dopaconone is your color, right? That's color, color has been made. There's different types of color. There's both eumelanin, which is deeper and darker, like brown or black. There is phenomelanin, which is more light brown or red, depending upon, you know, your DNA, but the Dopaquinone then is created. So that's the color it's in the Milano site. It's all being made there in factory central in the Milano site. And then for that to color to get out into the world of the skin, it's carried into the dendrites. Once it's been made, it's carried by these little teeny tiny vacuoles I call them vehicles, little organelles. The vacuoles pick up the color, right? And then carry it up, up, up into the finger like projections, which are dendrites, and all the way up to the end. it can also diffuse, you know, laterally. It doesn't have to make it to the very end of the dendrite, but it usually goes all the way up to the end. And then it diffuses into the skin and becomes part of the skin. And then as the skin sheds and replaces itself, that color comes up to the surface and then you see, you know, color on the surface of the skin. So really, you know, kind of in a nutshell, that's the melanogenesis process. That's how color is made every second of every minute of every day. When you go out into the sun, a lot of sun, this process happens faster, less sun, this process happens a little more slowly but it's always happening. You know, it's it's unless we live in a cave with, you know, no UV light whatsoever. But yeah, it's always happening. And and that's a good thing. The melanogenesis process just means the process of making color. When it becomes a problem is when the melanogenesis process in certain melanocytes is hyperactive. You know, instead of making color regularly or normally, so you've got your normal color, Certain cells are just hyperactive, they're producing too much color. and then in certain spots, you have I and mean, you'll have hyperpigmentation.:
0: And Michelle, something that I think doesn't get talked about enough, but is definitely important in this conversation is even hypopigmentation. Could you talk about conditions where we would see that, and why does hypopigmentation occur?
1: Yeah, so a lot various reasons and, and things, you know, like someone who has vitiligo generally has an issue with the tyrosinase and the tyrosine, so they just don't, in certain areas, produce pigmentation. And maybe someone who has um, albinism, right, where they have fair skin, light eyes, light hair, don't produce any pigmentation whatsoever. Uh, also can be an issue with tyrosinase. Uh, Then you've got, if you look at, I know if I look at my arms, I have dyschromia, which is a combination of both hyperpigmentation and hypopigmentation, and that's from sun damage. So sometimes when the sun damages the melanocyte and it's no longer reacting properly to the sun, it will either produce too much color in the case of hyperpigmentation or not enough color, where it's damaged and is unable to function properly, in the case of hypopigmentation, right? White spots, basically. So, unfortunately, there are some upcoming treatments that I recently heard about that maybe we can talk about next time. I need to do a little more deeper research into the, the treatments and the medications. Um, but there are some upcoming medications that are actually used to treat, an uh, underactive melanocytes, like someone who has vitiligo and it's, you know, the treatments are, seem to be very successful and they, you know, they, it's promising. Um, but as far as estheticians in a skincare clinic we're able to treat pretty effectively the hyperpigmentation in the skin but unfortunately not so much at this point in time the underactive saying, or the white spots not so much hypopigmentation yes so i know a lot of times people will use Camouflage makeup to, um, you know, to cover or conceal that or sometimes tattooing. Although tattooing doesn't always work because, of course, certain times of the year our skin tone changes, right? Our color changes. So that doesn't always work so well. But the good news is, is there are, you know, medications out and on the horizon to treat uh, certain types of um, vitiligo. Hmm.
0: Okay. So that's something we would probably refer out for. Got it.
1: Exactly. Yeah. That's something to refer out to the dermatologist for, um, you know, medication.
0: Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, I do want to dive into these hyperpigmentation conditions a little bit deeper, and then we'll get to some helpful ingredients and treatment options. But let's start with melasma, Michelle. It can be such a stubborn and easily triggered condition. Can you talk a little bit about melasma? I do feel like it's it's a little bit unique from some of these other ones in that it can have a lot of triggers and it can just be really tough to stay on top of. But... Um, for anybody who's really prone to melasma going into summer, what do you think are some things that are important um, as far as trigger avoidance?
1: Yeah, good, good question. And it is very tricky and can be very stubborn um, and and fickle, right? There there are lots of different triggers. So just starting with kind of the cause of melasma, and I'm sure everyone's seen it. Sometimes we call it pregnancy mass, but it doesn't always have to come with pregnancy. It can come with birth control. It can come with pregnancy for sure, or, you know, breastfeeding, or sometimes just by taking other types of hormones or medications that affect the pituitary gland, which is the, you know, the gland um, kind of if you're, looking at your third eye in between your eyebrows and go deep to that towards the, towards the brain. Um, the pituitary gland is about the size of a walnut and it is in that area there. And there's a lobe of the pituitary gland that gets, um, you know, over stimulated or activated, especially in the case of, of melasma. And just in recent years, they're associating it with um, an estrogen dominance potentially. Um, and have found, you know, with medications and um, anti-hormone medications that can help decrease the melasma a little bit. What I find with melasma, especially with uh, clients who are pregnant and they start to express melasma on the facial area, I always tell them, you know, you don't want to, or you really want to avoid the sunlight for sure because it can become a permanent fixture if you get too much sunlight while you're actually expressing melasma. I know when I was pregnant and my client Jeanette was pregnant at the same time many years ago, my melasma and in, in hers was probably just as pronounced. My actually went away after pregnancy and breastfeeding because I spent a lot of time in a dark treatment room. <laughs> she spent a lot of time in the sun with her older son at the time. So, you know, even years later, we were still trying to control her melasma, which became a little more permanent because of that excessive sunlight while expressing melasma. So, um, yeah, melasma is really kind of like you mentioned, Tessa, it's it's an uphill battle because, you know, we can treat it with melanogenesis inhibitors, tyrosinase inhibitors, green LED, lasers, um, you know, peels, all kinds of things. But if systemically it's being triggered, then it's really a tough battle to fight, you know, from the outside. Uh, one of my, another one of my clients who had pretty significant melasma, she was on birth control and stopped birth control right around age 50. And I hadn't seen her for about six weeks. And I saw her six weeks later and her melasma was completely cleared, you know, looking under like a skin's or a wood slam couldn't find any hyperpigmentation, not even residual. And she, yeah. And she had, you know, commended me for a job well done. And I thought mm, to myself, you know, no way. What, what's going on here? So I asked her, I said, Stacy, did you, stop birth control. She goes, I did like six weeks ago. And I said, I said, that's why you don't have melasma anymore. We've been battling this for years and it got a little better and a little worse. But after the, you know, ceasing of the birth control, it actually went away completely. So just yeah, it's amazing. So some of the things that you definitely want to tell your clients if they have melasma and they are pregnant or birth, um, breastfeeding is you know, out of the sun, a physical sunblock at a very high, high level, uh, products and serums and moisturizers with antioxidants to help to filter out some of, you know, the free radical damage. Um, ingredients like peptides and anti-inflammatory, other anti-inflammatories to help rejuvenate the skin. So really protection is, is important. Also other things that can exacerbate melasma when one has it is heat, like sitting in front of a fireplace or heater, um, maybe too much radio frequency that's focused on the upper skin layers or infrared, you know, that is great for other reasons. But, you know, yes. it could be like, yes, um, melasma, for sure. Yes.
0: No, it brings up such a good point, Michelle, because things like hot tubs, saunas, infrared, I think they're very associated with health. And there is just a difference in a lifestyle for somebody who is very pigment prone. So you want to be cautious with your lifestyle
1: choices exactly. Yeah, that it, I know sometimes it's you know to try, needing to be cautious with those things and just more cognizant of what we do can kind of be a pain, but it really does make a, a really big, you know, difference. I usually give to my clients the physical sunblocks, you know, that contain maybe some zinc or titanium. That does seem to deflect a lot of the sun's rays away from the skin, so it, it doesn't get worse. But here's the thing too with melasma, a lot of your clients who maybe have the potential to get nice and tan, but maybe very fair, like um, if you have an Asian background or maybe a Latin background, because of the contrast between the fairness of the skin and then its ability to get dark. When melasma shows itself, it looks very dark on the skin. Um, and so that's why you know you have a lot of people, a lot of clients and patients wanting to use the really strong hydroquinone uh, tyrosinase or melanogenesis inhibitors to get rid of that. And in doing that, for sure, you know you do want to stay out of the sun and use extra sun protection so you don't have a, a backfiring effect.
0: Yes, it's. I think it can be hard for people to wrap their head around that. You know, tanning just really isn't an option for somebody who's concerned with melasma or or pigment.
1: That yeah, that that is, and it's just such a you know, it's so fickle. It is harder to treat melasma than it is to uh, solar lentigo. When we talk about mm-hmm. solar lentigo. Um, It's probably easiest to treat PIH, I'll tell you why, (laughs) and Mm -hmm. um, definitely the most difficult to treat freckles slash, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. but yeah, melasma, once it's there and, you know, sometimes too, I've been told by clients, if they go in for laser, once they have melasma and it's, it's more of a permanent thing and it, and, uh, it becomes worse, sometimes laser can make it a little bit worse depending upon the type of laser that's used and and the filter that's used on it. Sometimes it makes Mm -hmm. it better, but I've also seen it, you know, become worse. So it is really great to have someone that's very knowledgeable um, in lasers and the, you know, anatomy of the skin and pigmentation when doing your laser treatments for anything. Definitely for hyperpigmentation absolutely
0: because we are these are heat based devices lasers are so that can present a little bit of a risk for people but yeah i would say it really really depends let's talk more about about the treatment options for each of these conditions michelle is there anything you've seen as far as maybe we can divide this into home care and then in-office treatments, is mm-hmm. there anything for melasma that you've seen to be really effective for either one?
1: Yeah, so thinking about you know doing treatments in the clinic for most estheticians, maybe an esthetician who, who can't use a laser, um, using you know possibly when you start to do a treatment, and let's just say you wanted to add a appeal to the treatment. A lot of times i have estheticians and clients alike ask me can't you just do a peel and get rid of it and like just be done with it and it's over and it's not a one and done right and it's definitely not a one-size-fits-all it can be very tricky so if you do a very light peel you know to help maybe get rid of some of the epithelial tissue and scatter some of the color that is already in the tissue itself that's helpful it doesn't do appeal really won't do anything for the hyperactive melanocyte unless the peel is also a melanogenesis inhibitor like for instance lactic acid or tartaric acid or citric acid. They all, they actually are inhibitors. So with some of these peels, especially if they're very gentle and they're also self-neutralizing, so you can leave them on the skin. So they really have time to do their melanogenesis inhibiting work. (laughs) That could help with the exfoliation, scattering of the color, and then suppressing some of the color as well. But if the, you know, if the pigmentation is very significant, then often what we will do is place the client on some type of a fading or brightening cream first for, you know, a month or so prior to appeal. So it doesn't trigger more hyperpigmentation, if that makes sense. So back to the, you know, the process of actually doing the, the procedure. You know, cleaning the skin and then maybe doing a light peel, one of those that I mentioned, and then coming in with possibly if you have green LED or even amber LED, preferably green LED, which has like an, a nanometer or a wavelength of, uh, that runs between like 550 and 570. The green, which really resonates with the melanosome, which can help scatter some of the color. So again, the LED is not a melanogenesis inhibitor, but it definitely helps to scatter some of the color, which is helpful. And then coming in with whatever product you use, you know, uh, an inhibitor. Uh, I'm sure everyone has a melanogenesis inhibitor, and I know Tess, you have some really great ones. Um, And using the, the cream, right, the inhibitor, and then using a cosmetic ultrasonic to help infuse the inhibitor so that the inhibitor can penetrate a little more deeply, especially if the inhibitor is not, you know, with an AHA or a BHA or anything that's too acidic, um, helping to penetrate that inhibitor in clinic is really helpful. And then coming in with your, you know, serums that contain antioxidants, your serums that contain, um, peptides for for healing for protection and then of course following up with a moisturizer and a really good really good sunblock I think works really well in the uh, you know in the skincare clinic and there are other things that one can do too I know sometimes I have estheticians in class they use IPL instead but I know a lot of the estheticians don't so I was going with the treatment that was you know, that could be um, most used. Most used,
0: for sure. And I feel like since you're talking about antioxidants, I think vitamin C is, is one to talk about. I don't know if you hear this often, Michelle, but I keep talking to new clients and, you know, bringing up the idea of of vitamin C and how important it is, and a lot of them have shared, you know, they've used one before and never really seen improvement, so they get discouraged. Can we talk a little bit about the importance of vitamin C, but perhaps like the realistic expectation for it?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And a lot of it really does, you know, depend on of course the person and the usage and you know the product and and how it and how it can can it even infuse into the skin. You know, if it's if the vitamin C is more oil loving, which of course the epidermis is, so you have better penetration with that, or maybe the vitamin C is in a liposomal delivery system, which are little teeny tiny microspheres, fatty spheres that have been um, you know, injected with vitamin C in, in a way. And that can take the vitamin C deeper into the skin. So if you're looking for not just the antioxidant factor, but also the inhibiting, right? The melanogenesis inhibiting ability, that would be a good idea but i think vitamin c is you know when applied topically in a cream or in a serum is a really great antioxidant it really does help to battle off a lot of the free radicals that are in the superficial tissue um as well as acting as a melanogenesis inhibitor and we also need vitamin c of course to help synthesize collagen you know in in skin too so for Sure, I think, yeah, definitely. Vitamin C is an antioxidant, one of those at the top of the list.
0: Yeah, I think what I've kind of come to see is that it's it's not always that ingredient where you have this, you know, one eighty transformation, but it's just so important to use and to find one that you can tolerate and that you can use so that you do get the, be- the, the benefit of collagen synthesis. And at the same time, we're really inhibiting that pigmentation
1: process. Yeah, for for sure. And I know, I mean, they everybody, you know, today says they, they have vitamin C in their serum or in their moisturizer. So finding a product line that you really know is effective and it's been proven to work and that you, that you have you, that you like, but definitely give it like, you know, six to eight weeks. I have the same thing my clients will say after two days but it's not brightening. <laughs> right, right. You've got to give it, you know, a month or two months to really start to see the results before you can say, you know, it's really not brightening. Of course, if it's not, if it's not hurting the skin or affecting it negatively, you've got to, you really want to stick with it.
0: Yes. And just like you were saying, this pigmentation has been stored you know since our youth it's it's really just following instruction from our dna it's stored so deeply and our skin has such a strong memory of it think of all the years and all the sun damage you've accumu- accumulated and then maybe compare that to just a couple days of product use it's it's not something that can be just deleted overnight
1: right. exactly you gotta give it time even with some of the other well pretty much with all of the other ingredients too i know if you use like a like something like a strong peel in the clinic you're going to get immediate results it's a little bit different but for home care products you know you definitely want to give it like a month two months longer than two months to really see the results and what i like to do is to take before and after pictures so when my clients come in I will do, you know, the first round of pictures, no matter what it is I'm treating. And then every time they come in thereafter, take those pictures too, so that you can see and they can see the progression or what's happening with the skin. So you can really keep tabs.
0: Oh, I, yes, I can't state that enough just because you know day to day it's so difficult to see these changes in our skin and your clients probably will not notice it but you want to have those pictures both for you know yourself to to show the progress you've made and to also show your client like look stuff is happening here this you know we are making improvement it's just
1: it's so minute day to day Right, right. And, and it all adds up. And people are surprised when they look back at their pictures. They go, wow, you know, my pigmentation is really lightened or whatever issue it is, condition that you're treating. They forget sometimes, right? We forget sometimes what we looked like a month or two months ago. And because we get used to the new us, that we forget how far we've come and we're just expecting more, which that will come too. But yeah, that is one good reason to take pictures and have that in their electronic file or you know in their file. Yes. Their
0: and I have a question for you, Michelle. In terms of, because I know you've been treating skin for a long, long time, in in stubborn cases of melasma, when we're talking about, you know, perhaps somebody's evening routine and the actives they're using at night, do you see any difference between, I mean, maybe it's like comparing apples and oranges, but what do you prefer? Consistent use of of one ingredient or perhaps a variety of a few to kind of hit different
1: different levels of the skin. Exactly. Good question. So at night, right, what you want to make sure of is that your clients have different things. So remember when we talked a little bit about the melanogenesis process at the beginning and said when the sun hits the skin, it breeds free radicals. And that's kind of like where it all begins. So if you have a moisturizer or serum that contains antioxidants like vitamin C, or, you know, vitamin A, uh, tocopherol, that's really great because that kind of stops it or slows it down at the get go. And then we also want ingredients in our products as well, our moisturizers and serums and all, all of those great ingredients uh, products that contain like anti-inflammatories so that when inflammation is, is taking place that we have some anti-inflammatories to slow that down so that the melanocyte is not so overly stimulated. So that could be like azelaic acid. That could be like beta-glucan or watercress or aloe vera. Those are just a handful. Uh, when you think of anti-inflammatories, that's, that's really helpful. Um, and then of course you need your melanogenesis inhibitors. And that's a really, that's the key here one of the keys <laughs> is the melanogenesis inhibitors like you could look for <clears throat> alpha or alpha arbutin or azelaic acid um licorice extract um mulberry extract kojic acid uh lactic acid um just to name a few you know, vitamin c you know, retinol just to name a few um, and if you have multiple melanogenesis inhibitors and not just one or two because different inhibitors will affect the melanogenesis process differently and at a different point. So if you got a couple in there instead of just one or two, let's say 3 or 4 instead, you have a really good chance of slowing that you know that melanocyte down. Cuz when you think of a like a tyrosinase inhibitor basically ingredients that are tyrosinase inhibitors, they'll get into the skin and they will bind to tyrosinase so that tyrosinase, that enzyme cannot bind to tyrosine quite as much or quite as effectively. And that's a good thing (laughs) because it's a disruptor and it will slow down the melanocyte and the melanocyte will not be as hyperactive. And it can go back to normal. But the thing with the, of course, with the melanogenesis inhibitors is that, is that when you stop using them after a month or two, they stop working. So you have to keep using them. Um, Yeah, and then of course, at the top of our list, sunblock, right? Because sun hits that skin, can't, you know, it's gonna start breeding free radicals. And then the whole process begins, but the sunblock, can really help to slow everything down from the beginning.
0: Yes. And Michelle, I'm sure you're so familiar with this argument, but I see it kind of come back into trend every summer of, you know, people advocating for the sun and saying, you know, we we shouldn't be wearing sunscreen and the sun is a natural thing. What Mm -hmm. would you say to that argument in terms of, uh, protecting your skin?
1: Yeah. And I mean, the, the skin does need a certain amount of UV light to help synthesize vitamin D in the body for, you know, your bones and your muscles and things like that, but just a very small amount, you know, you can be sitting next to a window like I am now just for 10 or 15 minutes, 20 minutes and get all that I need really. Um, you know, going out into the sun, especially between the hours of 10 and two, when the sun is like high in the sky and the, the rays are the longest, that's pretty much the most uh, detrimental time to be out in the sun between 10 and two. If you, you want to go out in the sun um, before 10 or after two is probably safer. I know it's not always possible to, to limit your time. But yeah, that's why we have the sunblock, right? The sunblocks and sunscreens to help filter out. Because UV light doesn't just, you know, activate the melanogenesis process, but it also can breed a lot of free radicals. It's also been known to damage collagen elastin and degrade it and cause sagging and loss of elasticity. It's also been known to damage DNA, which can potentially cause skin cancer so a little bit's fine, but I think we get more than a little bit. You know, most of us get a lot more than we really need. So the sun box and sunscreens I in my my opinion is necessary for sure.
0: yeah and I, I think it's a good reminder that no sunscreen is is even protecting you perfectly. There's no sunscreen that's giving you 100% coverage all over your body. So you still are able to absorb vitamin D even
1: wearing your sunscreen. Exactly, like through your scalp, through the backs of your hands. That's why we should be applying sunblock to the backs (laughs) of our hands. But you're absolutely right. So yeah, I'm I'm an advocate for, for sunblock for sure. And I know you are too.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I've, I've even seen tanning beds just coming back into popularity, even after, you know, so much good education and even the, the resurgence of, of sunscreen and just so much emphasis on it from estheticians perspective, but I'm even seeing tanning beds (laughs) kind of creep back in have you had experience yeah, with seeing clients who use them or what, what you're noticing?
1: Yeah, and I know they're saying, well, the tanning beds are like three or four minutes now, they d- and they give you this, they claim, you know, give you a precise dose, so it's not like you're basking in the sun quite as long. You're just activating the melanocyte rather than damaging the skin. Um, if you're going to compare, I'm, I'm not an expert in tanning beds, but, uh, in my mind, if you're going to compare the newer tanning beds to the older version, that might be the case that they're, that they're a bit safer. Um, but as far as safe, um, I don't, I don't know that I would say safe entirely, right? Because you're still getting that radiation. You're still getting the free radicals afterwards. So and you're not going in, of course, you're going into a tanning bed, you're not wearing sunblock. Uh, So if if someone is going to take that route, then, you know, extra sunblock when you're out and about even more, you you really want to be cognizant of antioxidants in your creams and moisturizers for sure to help protect the skin. Uh, But yeah, I do have a few of my clients that utilize those tanning beds prior to going to let's say the islands or Hawaii and they say, well, I want to prep my skin to get my melanocytes kind of ready. So I'm not, you know, in the sun and get burned. Um, that, that theory is, is interesting. Um, you know, whether it is beneficial or not, I really can't say, (laughs) you know, prepping your skin prior to going to say Hawaii. um, mm -hmm yeah, it potentially, I don't know if they have, if there have been any studies, extensive studies on that. But if there are, if I find any, I'll definitely share them with you, Tessa.
0: (laughs) Yeah, please do. I mean, you know, either way, it is just accumulating inflammation and, and
1: damage in the
0: skin. It's just a matter of how you want to get it, I guess.
1: Exactly, exactly. And then, of course, we've got, you know, lentigo solar lentigo and we've got pih let's let's talk
0: a bit more about pih especially i know solar lentigo you're saying it's essentially sun damage and happens after years of repeat exposure so we know the best way to protect our skin but pih is something that's such a hot topic it can be more common in those i'd say like mid Fitzpatrick range to higher Fitzpatrick range. What are some of the ingredients that we should be using if we're prone to that kind of acne trauma hyperpigmentation?
1: Yeah. So um, just first of all, PIH for maybe people who aren't familiar post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation often caused by like acne or picking or scratching or any kind of trauma on your skin instead of the sun being the trigger or the culprit for the milano the the kicking off of the melanogenesis process or the hyper melanogenesis process it would be the trauma so the trauma would be the trigger rather than uv light being the trigger so the good thing if there is a good thing about pih is that once the trigger is gone, you know, once the acne has been treated, so of course that's first and foremost, and there's no more breakouts. Usually within time, there's no more PIH because the melanocyte during acne is triggered to produce color, of course. So the color comes up in the skin and you see the color and you call it PIH. And then though, as the skin sloughs, you know, as the skin sheds and replaces itself, that PIH does, does go away. If it didn't, I'd still be covered in PIH because I had grade two acne as a kid. And the only thing we did back then was just let it, you know, let the sloughing begin, you know, just naturally my, my skin sloughed. And of course I have no more acne to kind of reactivate it. So yeah, taking care of the acne first and using products that help to control breakouts and then after that has you know happened and the skin is healing and there's some pih left behind if it's been like a month or two after the last or final breakout and maybe the client has been using a melanogenesis inhibitor for a month or so to suppress any new pigmentation what you could do is you could start if you know how of course you could start to go in with really light peels lactic peels um jesner's peel Uh, jesner's peel is great for sloughing and also jesner's peel um, with the lactic acid and the resorcinol is a melanogenesis inhibitor luckily tca trichloracetic acid if you're familiar that's really good at helping to release the color but also suppressing the pigmentation So even if you didn't suppress the pigmentation with time, it would go away because the melanocyte does go back to normal. It doesn't stay in kind of that hyperactive phase forever. It goes back to normal and then the skin sloughs. But the reason why you don't want to start peeling too quickly if someone has very like open or broken acne or go over that is the skin won't be able, the body won't be able to differentiate between the trauma from the acne and the and the stimulation of the peels and the peels can actually make it a bit worse. So yeah, you want to wait a while or you definitely want to use an inhibitor um, prior to peeling or prior to microderming or uh, uh, microneedling the skin. Of course, microneedling is not a true exfoliator, but the microneedling definitely scatters the color. So that's a good thing. Uh, of course, we don't want to do microneedling over acne, so that's why we you know, want to wait for that acne to clear, which is a, another topic, of course, but yeah, i have mm-hmm. got to wait for the acne to clear.
0: That's a really good point, Michelle, and I feel like something that I want to ask is, is, for example, for estheticians in the treatment room who are extracting active acne and perhaps doing a peel treatment at the same time. Do you think there's anything to be cautious of there? Do you recommend one before the
1: other in a facial? Yeah. So I know everyone does it a little differently. Um, What I usually do if, I'm looking at someone with acne and they have no extractables meaning that they, they have acne that sounds kind of funny right having acne <laughs> no extractables but maybe they there's some sebaceous cysts or just things that are not ready to come out and I won't be doing any extractions today you know maybe not a lot of comedones at this point in time I would usually go with as long as the skin's not open and broken you could go with a light peel that's what I do or if I'm doing an acne treatment, I find there are a lot of extractables, maybe a lot of comedones or pustules that are really ripe. Then I might go myself with an enzyme and steam to kind of soften that up prior to doing the extractions. You know, prior to doing the blue LED or the high frequency. Um, but I'm sorry, Tessa, you're you're I got off topic there. Your exact question uh, oh, was. Okay. Well, I'm just wondering if you're saying, um, you know
0: pigment can really respond to exfoliation or appeal, especially when there's kind of trauma going on at the same time and the skin can't differentiate. Is it okay for somebody to peel after extraction? Should they be careful to go around them? If that helps to clarify. Definitely.
1: So with extractions, if there is a pustule that is ripe and you know, if you peel over, it, it will bleed out. I prefer to go around it. Because of course, if it bleeds out, then it crusts over and then there's that potential for PIH. So I prefer to just go around it. I know sometimes when you're removing the peel, that can open up a little bit as well though. So if there's a lot of like really ripe pustules and very active acne, I usually don't peel. But if there is maybe a pustule on the forehead, you know, and that's about it, or just a couple of pustules, you can definitely go around it. And hopefully, you know, that acid peel doesn't open up the pustule and create a bleed out, which could also sometimes cause inflammation in that area as well. So yes, it depends on how many breakouts, you know, maybe one or two breakouts, you go around um, a full face of acne and you know, inflamed with crusts and scabs and pustules. Um, I don't peel that day then for my, for my clients. Sure. No, that's
0: good to know. I know everyone's a little bit different with that. So Mm -hmm. yeah, that's helpful to know what what you would do. And I love, I love that you said, you know, PIH, it does fade with time. So there's hope if that's something that is really bothering you, I know it can be bothersome more, even more bothersome than the acne itself. And one thing I notice with, with clients I work with is getting them on a good routine and using the right skincare, they do find those marks or that hyperpigmentation, it does just go away faster and it, it doesn't hang around as long. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a good indication of healthy skin and skin that's responding well to treatment. But it does fade with time too. So that's that's good assurance.
1: Yes, exactly. Like with in, in my time, you know, when I had acne um in the early 80s. Um there we didn't use retin A or I didn't use retin A. Um my mother didn't take me to a dermatologist, so it was just about letting the acne heal pretty much on its own, which it did, they, thankfully. And then of course, left a lot of PIH, and with the natural exfoliation of the skin, it it went away. Um, And it does, but to kind of speed up that process, the peel, the peels like we talked about is a good idea. Um, Even uh, if you do microdermabrasion, of course, not over the acne, (laughs) acne has got to be gone. So I usually palpate the skin, you know, make sure there's nothing under the skin that you can, you can't see, but you can feel um, and then do a peel or microderm or whatever you use for exfoliation. And then, of course, controlling, probably the most important thing is just controlling because people who have acne, of course, it's this vicious cycle, right? So it's controlling that acne, making sure the hair follicles are clean and clear because, of course, every pustule and every sebaceous cyst, which is just a deeper pimple, starts with a clogged follicle. So if you can clear and clean those follicles, I mean, even if it's an androgen imbalance to blame, if you can keep those follicles nice and Clear and clean, you can really cut down on the amount of breakouts that no one has.
0: Yes, absolutely. That's such a good point to drive home. You really want to address the acne first and ensure we're not perpetuating, you know, the breakout cycle because that will inevitably end in more hyperpigmentation. So it's something to know as an esthetician when your clients are really bothered by pigment they also have to understand treating the acne is a big part of
1: the process too absolutely absolutely with the pih and then with the pie (laughs) yes with the post-inflammatory erythema so of course with pih right you've got pih that can be brown in color because your skin produces more eumelanin or it can be more pink in color if you're or light brown in color. If your skin produces more phenomelanin, or you can have P I E post inflammatory erythema, which I I can always tell if it's P I E by placing my finger over the area and pressing and then releasing. So if it goes away when you press it and then it comes right back, then I know, okay, this is P I E because I've cut off the blood supply when I'm pushing, pushing on the skin and then I take my finger off and it comes right back. Okay, so this is you know the dilation or the inflammation of the capillary rather than the melanocyte. So probably you've heard me say many times, uh, Tessa, what I like to give or or have rather my clients go and buy is um, a supplement. Uh, you could get it from the health food store. You get it from Trader Joe's. It's 500 milligrams of the vitamin C together with 250 milligrams of bioflavonoids has to be together that's why a lot of my clients go to you know trader joe's and just get the synergy c it's got that perfect combination but the vitamins of that combo helps to, has been proven to strengthen the capillary wall, making it more toned and tight, less red. Um, it's also an antioxidant. It's an anti-inflammatory. And believe it or not, it's also an antihistamine, a natural antihistamine to some degree. It helps to suppress <laughs> the mast cells from producing histamine to you know some degree. So yeah, for redness in the skin, not just for PIE, but for like, um, or dark under eye circles or bruising, uh, you know, even it helps to kind of tone down rosacea a little bit. Absolutely
0: love that tip, Michelle. I I know you love the synergistic C (laughs) from from Trader Joe's. Um, And yeah, another good example of of vitamin C and antioxidants and, and what a key role they play in hyperpigmentation.
1: Yeah, definitely. And as far as things that you can apply topically, I'm sure everyone has their favorite ingredient to reduce redness and to strengthen capillaries, but azeliac acid, um, niacinamide. It also helps with the increase the circulation a little bit, kind of flushing everything through, um, other, you know, more healing ingredients like beta glucan, uh, watercress, Alantone, aloe vera, to name a few, a vitamin K, a handful of them there. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, everyone, I'm sure appreciates the suggestions and I'm also going to link some product options for some of these conditions we spoke about in the show notes today. So, if you're listening and struggling with with one of these forms of hyperpigmentation, you can peruse and and check them out. Michelle I I would just want to thank you so much for coming on and sharing as much as you did about this topic and about a course that you teach and offer. Could you just also share before you go what what classes you are offering right now? And if anyone wants to learn more about hyperpigmentation,
1: is there a class
0: available for that as well?
1: Absolutely. So a lot of the classes... um, Excuse me, are on Zoom on Mondays that you can take. They're usually from 9 30 to about 3 30 Pacific Standard Time, which is California, California time. Um, and they are, we take a deep dive into the theory, the lecture, you know, the didactics of each and every subject. Um, you always have a demonstration video, and the demo video you'll always be able to access so that you can use it to practice with and the uh the pdf the powerpoint. So yeah, there is a class for sure on hyperpigmentation. There's a class on LED light therapy, a manual facial lymphatic drainage, there's a class on anti-aging which also encompasses microcurrent. Uh, there is a class um on machines coming up on ultrasonic ultrasound, galvanic and high frequency all wrapped into one. <laughs> There's a class on acne uh, pretty much for everything. I'm trying to this off the top of my head. Oh, skin analysis and the integumentary system um, treatments for the eyes. If you go on uh, concepts Institute, you can see them all. And uh, yeah, they all fall under clinical aesthetics. Oh. And another thing is I know a lot of people can't take the class on Monday because they're working. You can always opt to rent them on demand in your own time. Because the classes do become, once they've been held, they become um, on-demand classes where you can rent them for up to five days each. And uh, yeah, every, every class does. It comes with everything that you need. You can always email me with your questions. Uh, email me when you're ready for the test. And there's a special also, I think, uh, you might have the link for it for the clinical aesthetics. Um, yeah, the bundle package where you get seven classes and the final final test for free, which it's down, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, the bundle package price, I think is 575 for seven of those classes. So you can pick seven of the clinical classes that you want to take either in your own time or you know, with me on Zoom in real time. Um, yeah, and I was going to say something else here too. We do also have live classes as well, which is um, a little different. But you can find those those on online.
0: Perfect. Yes, and Michelle did provide me with a link for you guys, so you can you can go for that special if if you would like. So I'll link the information. And yeah, just links to Michelle's courses in the show notes. Michelle, was there anything else we didn't get to discuss that you wanted to
1: add? I think we we covered a lot. I mean, there's always, you know, Tessa, you and I have so much to talk about skincare and and just the skin in general. But yeah, I think we covered a lot. If anyone has any questions, they can definitely email me about uh, the topics or uh, just about anything I'm, I'm happy to answer.
0: Great. Thank you so much, Michelle. We really appreciate you and your time. So thank you so much for coming on again. And you guys, if you enjoyed this episode, Michelle has been on the podcast quite a few times. So I'll be sure to link her other episodes as well. Yeah, thanks
1: for having me. And I hope to see everyone um, someday soon. <laughs> Yay. Thanks so much, Michelle. You're the best. Thank you. Thank you, Tessie, too.